Hi everybody, welcome to a rare morning episode on the Martinis with Scott channel. I want to talk to you today about uh, a hack for troubled company negotiations. What is the trick? So let's say you're responsible for uh, a troubled company, your management, your uh, uh, director, and you're in financial difficulty. You have a turnaround plan, but you need the help of your stakeholders. You need the bank, you need uh, the unsecured creditors on side, all of your secured creditors on side. What's the best way to go about that? Look, there's no cure-all for negotiations. So this is a, <clears throat> this is uh, the most important thing when you're dealing with trouble companies. And then of course, all of your other nuances of negotiation also apply. So you need to restructure, say your bank, your other uh, secured creditors, your unsecured creditors, potentially your shareholders, if you have more than one shareholder and you have uh, someone that's problematic. Um, so the trick to this is to is to know the value of each stakeholder. And how do you go about that? Well, let's talk first about defining a troubled company. What does that mean for the purposes of this discussion? It means that there's no going concern value. Uh, there's no goodwill. Or the goodwill that does exist is really limited and uh, definable. So for example, it could be a customer list. It could be uh, a trademark, uh, some IP, whatever, but you can define what it is and it's limited. Fair market value, remember this equation, the value of a business, the fair market value is equal to the sum of uh, the value of its assets plus the value of goodwill. <clears throat> so those two things, the value of the assets like your receivables and inventory and equipment, real estate, whatever, plus your goodwill. Expressed another way, goodwill is equal to fair market value, the value of the business, less the assets, which is exactly how a business valuator goes about valuing goodwill. As they start by valuing the whole business, which is uh, all future cash flows adjusted uh, to today for time and risk. That's what value is. And then you look at your assets and you deduct that from that valuation. So let's say your valuation turns out to be making up numbers, say $10 million dollars. You've got assets of uh, $2 million um, at, at uh, replacement cost or liquidation value or whatever your metric is there. Uh, so you take your $10 million of value minus your $2 million of assets. Uh, so you have $8 million left over. That's your goodwill because that's the simple equation. All right. And that's how a evaluator uh, looks at this. The reason I walk you through that is because in this example, when you're a troubled company, there is no goodwill really. Therefore, what? Therefore, the value of your business is equal to the value of your assets. And at that point, typically at liquidation value. All right, so what does liquidation value means? Um, it, it means that if you had to go sell this stuff today, think of a desk in your office or your house, a couch in your house. If you gotta go buy that thing, you know, that couch, it might cost you, I don't know, $1,000, $2,000, however you're buying your couches <laughs> and how expensive they might be. Let's say it's a $1,000 couch. But then if you want to go sell that, how much are you going to get for it? If you're going to put it on uh, Kijiji or some site, you're not going to get $1,000 for it. Maybe you'll get $500 for it if it's relatively clean. Maybe you'll get $100 for it if it's 20 years old. Um, <clears throat> so that's liquidation value is that latter number as opposed to replacement cost, which is the $1,000 that you, you, know, you paid for that hypothetical couch. It's a smoothie day on martinis with Scott. Uh, therefore, so where are we? Okay, let me give you an example of a hypothetical company that we are going to restructure. Let's say we have accounts receivable of $2 million 
Um, but of that $2 million, only $1 million is collectible because there's some stuff in the accounts receivable subledger sub that maybe ought not be there. Um, some bad debt, some, some things that are just aren't collectible. So our, we got $2 million in the books, but the reality is we're going to collect $1 million of that at most. We have inventory of $2 million also, so accounts receivable $2 million. Inventory $2 million equals working capital assets of $4 million. But the inventory of $2 million is at cost. If you need to go liquidate that stuff, let's give it 50 cents on the dollar. So it's also worth a million dollars. Your fixed assets on the book, let's call them 100, not on the book, at liquidation value. Let's call them $100,000. So you got AR of a million liquidation, inventory at a million dollars liquidation, fixed assets on $100,000. Those fixed assets, if you're a manufacturing company, might have cost you $10 million 10 years ago, right? But at liquidation, they're installed, it's hard to get them out, uh, so they have very little value. So uh, so you've got $2 million in AR worth a million, $2 million in inventory worth a million, fixed assets worth $100,000, you've got $2.1 million liquidation of assets, liquidation value of assets. Let's say we owe our bank $3 million. Now, why would the bank be into this $3 million? Because they loaned you close to $2 million on your inventory, sorry, on your accounts receivable. We said our book value was $2 million. The bank gave you say 80, 90% of that. Let's just round it up to 2 million. Um, and they gave you 50% on your inventory, which was 2 million, 50% of that is 1 million. So you got your AR at two, you've got your inventory at two, uh, sorry, at one. And so now the banks, you owe the bank $3 million. That's what they're in for. You've got other uh, debt, which would be your suppliers, your unsecured creditors. Let's just call that $2 million. And in our hypothetical company, we've got four shareholders with personal guarantees uh, to the bank. So the bank loaned the money, but part of what the bank's relying on is the personal guarantees. So the trick, the hack, as we say to uh, the negotiation is to know the pecking order to know the, and, and I did a show on this, uh, I think last week, but it's, you know the pecking order of your stakeholders, the priority order of the capital stack. Um, so who comes first? The first secured is the bank. What position, now you need to figure out the math on, on each stakeholder. So the bank, let's walk through this given our example. They have a first secured, we've got a million dollars of collectible accounts receivable, they have a million dollars of inventory at liquidation value and $100,000 in fixed assets at liquidation value. Um, that's 2.1 million um, less 200,000, let's say, actually, let's make it a round number. Let's say $100,000 in professional fees to do that liquidation. Why do they have professional fees? Because how do they liquidate? They need to, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, they need to go some, through some sort of bankruptcy insolvency process. Uh, if you're sitting in Canada, they would likely appoint a receiver and uh, the, uh, the bank would also have lawyers. The receiver would have lawyers. You have to go to court. Maybe the company has lawyers. You need to argue all this. Then you have to hire the liquidator. Let's just say these are net numbers to make our, our life easy. But the bottom line is there's fees coming off of this. So after fees, let's just say they net $2 million um, into their pocket on a $3 million loan. Therefore, they have a loss of a million dollars. That's the math. And, and they'll go after the personal guarantees, potentially for the million dollars, but it's always hard to collect on a personal guarantee. Um, you know, the, guy, the, the, the person that gave the guarantee, the, 
the woman or man that did that, the shareholder that did that, um, is going to fight them. And then even if the bank wins, they have to collect. It's hard to go after the house. There's a mortgage on it. There's all sorts of problems with collecting personal guarantees. A lot of banks don't even bother. They really have the personal guarantee just to hold the feet to the fire uh, of the entrepreneur. So they have a $3 million loan. They collect $2 million. They lose $1 million. Maybe they have some guarantees. How do you go out? How do you negotiate with that bank? You have a workout plan. You need the bank to support you. Um, the starting point is to understand that there are a million dollars underwater. Okay, the bank's never going to tell you that, but you need to understand that. That's the trick to the negotiation. Uh, that's the hack. Give them a workout plan. Make sure that their loss in that workout plan is is less than a million dollars because that's where they stand right now. Make it more timely. Um, and make it with very little or no risk. That's how you structure uh, a restructuring plan, a turnaround plan. That's how you deal with your bank. Remember, in all stakeholder negotiations in a troubled company, you're dealing with quantum, like you're gonna lose a million without me. With me, you're only gonna lose half a million dollars. That's the quantum of the loss. And you're dealing with time, right? Which is, you're gonna lose a million dollars if you act today. If you wait six months, you're not gonna lose anything because my workout plan is gonna work and you're dealing with risk between here and there. If, you, if you're presenting the bank with a bunch more risk and they don't believe in you, then, then they're gonna take the bird in the hand, so to speak. So by understanding the math behind the position of that stakeholder, you're way ahead because so many entrepreneurs go into their bank, go into a restructuring and just say, it's your job to help me, right? They don't have any concept of the math and where the bank stands. And the bank, it's not the bank's job to say, hey, we're underwater. It's the bank's job to say, you owe me $3 million, pay me $3 million. Okay, so that's the bank. The unsecured, so let's go back to our example. So we said that the unsecureds um, were owed, what did we say, $2 million. Well, the bank's already um, underwater a million dollars. So what's left for next in the pecking order here in the priority of the capital stack? Obviously zero. Therefore, they have a $2 million loss in a liquidation. But you don't want to liquidate, you want to keep going. So what do you do? You understand the math, and the math is their claim is worth zero. So they can collect zero in a liquidation when you go bankrupt this afternoon. That's your starting point. Create a cash flow, a 13-week model. There's prior shows on this. I'm sure Olga will want to do another one uh, soon here or eventually. Create the cash flow, the 13-week that um, and the rolling monthly model that incorporates your turnaround plan. Plan. Go to your key suppliers. Go to all of your suppliers. And again, you're negotiating on quantum and time. If I can pay you anything more than zero, um, you're a winner. Um, and if you give me a bunch more time, maybe I can pay you 20 cents of the dollar, 50 cents of the dollar, 100 cents of the dollar over seven years or some crazy number like that. And in the meantime, I won't make your problem worse, meaning don't give me more credit. I'll pay COD, I'll work out a really short terms, um, whatever is logistically possible. And that's the way you negotiate with your unsecureds. The hard part with unsecureds is to get everybody to agree. If you have a list, a subledger of 100, you know, 100 suppliers, you're not going to get 100 of them to sign on to whatever the restructuring plan is. Um, you're going to end up getting sued by three or four of them, um, you know, maybe 5% in my experience, depending on how good your plan is. If you can't get them all 
together and moving in the same direction more or less uh, with a sense of fairness and respect for all of them. That's why you go to bankruptcy court. That's why you do restructurings. Uh, you get the court to say to the unsecureds as a group, you know, if you vote over whatever the X percent hurdle is, then this plan applies to everybody. But you can also do that informally. We almost always do it informally by understanding the math, having the model prepared, and focusing on time and reducing their loss, uh, but making sure they understand that there's a loss coming. Um, shareholders. Now, if you're a sole entrepreneur, um, owner manager, you don't have to worry about this win, but one, but often there's a group of, of shareholders Say uh, you have a partner or you got three partners or there's four shareholders and you've all got personal guarantees. What is the quantum of your position? Where are you at right now? Well, you got a personal guarantee of the bank. The bank's underwater a million dollars. You're starting at negative one million. All right. And your workout plan is going to go, you know, it, it's going to hopefully on paper anyways, it's going to improve shareholder value from negative one million to, you know, zero or positive one million. My point is the shares are worth nothing and don't forget the personal guarantees because you can also off, often use those to negotiate and in the mind of the shareholder that gave the guarantee, it's a real issue. It's a very real issue. Their starting position is not zero, it's negative one million in our hypothetical example. All right, so I just wanted to walk through because I'm, I'm working on a couple of these different deals right now that have exactly that mindset behind them. I thought I would share that with you the trick to, to negotiating in a troubled company is to understand the priority priority order of your capital stack, where your stakeholders rank, and the value of their claim in a bankruptcy because all you're trying to do is make that better. Time, quantum of loss. Let's move on to a new topic. Today, here we are on March 4th, 2020. And yesterday, I spent most of my day buying uh, stock in Mind Medicine, which started trading yesterday on the NEO, which is a Canadian, I'm gonna call it an over-the-counter, I don't know if that's true, <clears throat> but you know, relatively new exchange um, in Canada, and Mind Medicine started trading on that yesterday. So what is Mind Medicine? Well, they're building an IP portfolio of psychedelic-inspired medicines uh, uh, so FDA approved um, medicines to attack anxiety, ADHD, addiction, and depression, uh, adult depression. Uh, they're doing human cl clinical trials, uh, FDA approved, and they're using uh, psilocybin. Uh, um, don't hold me to the pronunciation of that, but psilocybin, which are magic mushrooms, um, LSD, MDMA, and ibogaine, which I'd never even heard of before. <clears throat> so this is, I think, the new big thing. And listen, whatever I say, I don't provide investment advice. I'm not qualified to provide investment advice. It's not my job to provide investment advice and I'm not selling you anything. So you don't have to listen to me for sure. Don't listen to me for investment advice. I'm just telling you what I do and my thinking behind it. And the point here, I know that there's a bunch of our listeners of this show that in fact have invested in the cannabis space because we've done a bunch of cannabis uh, uh, shows in the past. And so they'll be interested in this and it's an opportunity for me to share some of my thinking with you on uh, mid-market and smaller public companies. So like I said, I bought a lot of this stock yesterday um, and I did it with knowing very little about the company. In fact, it was just yesterday morning that I figured out that they were trading 
starting yesterday, uh, starting the day. So um, I didn't have a plan. I didn't know anything about the company. But what I do know is the names of some of the people and the investment dealers behind the company. I'm not saying they're friends. I'm not saying I'm gonna call them on the phone, um, ran into them in the street. I might not recognize them. They may not recognize me. Um, <clears throat> but I know, I know the names of the financial people, not the non-financial people, the scientists and the doctors that are, you know, in this company, but the financial people that are behind this and, and they're strong. And, and here's the point of, of me bringing up this topic. You have to know as a entrepreneur, an owner and manager, if you're intending to go public, if you're going through reverse takeover, um, if you're an investor in companies of this size, right? If you're talking about Amazon or Apple, that's a whole different beast, right? Something with a very strong brand, that's a whole different beast. But if you're going into these venture type, mid-market and smaller public companies, there is no such thing as an efficient market. The stocks do not reflect the fair market value of those businesses. The stocks are their own beasts. It's like you have a, the company over here, the business over here, and you have the stock over here, and sometimes they meet, but sometimes they have nothing to do with each other. If you're on the podcast, I've got my hands going everywhere here, so you're not gonna be able to see that. But the bottom line is, is the stock is an animal in and of itself, and I urge entrepreneurs and management teams to think about their stock differently. Like just, just think of it completely independently uh, of their business, certainly at that stage of a company's life. And it, the point is that it needs to be marketed separately. Stock needs to be marketed independent of the company. If you look at the Toronto Venture Exchange um, and some of the smaller over-the-counters in the U.S., you know, companies list the reverse into these they reverse into these public companies and then nobody trades their stock ever again. The thing falls down to five cents or, you know, eight cents, but there's zero volume. You always have to be careful of the volume. And that's because they don't have a plan. They don't have a promotion. They don't have a marketing of their stock. So you need to, as a public company, you need to promote your stock, which is a, is a, is a bad word for market it, get people to sell it, get people to buy it, make a market for this thing until the company grows and attracts enough attention to get stable investment uh, from, from shareholders um, on its own. But just look at, as I said, look at the Toronto Venture Exchange. I bet you 95% of, of the companies on there really don't trade very much at all. There's really very little volume. There's very little value there and outside of the cannabis space. And so, or what used to be the cannabis uh, uh, value that existed. And so you don't have to look very hard to prove my point that these companies don't trade. And if they are trading, it's because somebody made that happen. It was a plan and they've executed on it. So that brings me back to my medicine. Uh, I don't know the company. I'm gonna do a deep dive into this because I'm fascinated uh, by, this, uh, by this part of the industry um, in medicine and application of these psychedelic substances. And to me, you know, intuitively, this could be bigger than the whole cannabis space. That's why I'm interested in it. I'm gonna do a deep dive. I will share some of that thinking and research with you on the Martinis with Scott channel as we go forward. But as for yesterday, what happened? They traded over 40 million shares yesterday. And I think their closing was somewhere around uh, 40 cents. They traded a lot in the 30s, uh, some higher than that, 50, 60. 
And I can't find what their float is because it's so new that there's not much disclosure. But on the back of the envelope, I'm guessing it's around 150 million dollars. 150 million shares would be their float. I think it's 250-ish in total, and there's uh, 90 to 100 locked up in escrow. So let's call it 150, but I don't know how much of that is a true float. So don't hold me to these numbers, but the point is 40 million shares is a lot of trading. It's a strong opening. And you know what? That didn't happen by accident. Somebody organized that. You know, the insiders, um, not the people that are in escrow, but they raised, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but $37 million, I think it was, $34 million, somewhere around that range um, at a pre-IPO financing. And that was done at around uh, 33 cents off the top of my head to hold me to that, but around 33 cents a share. Well, I bought a bunch of shares yesterday um, and my average cost base was 40 cents. So I bought in the public, um, they bought in the pre, and they're looking for a lot more of a bang than 33 cents to 40 cents. I'm pretty happy with where my my average cost base is on that. And so I don't think they were selling. So who's selling? That's the interesting question. Everybody thinks about who's buying, but who's selling for 40 million shares uh, to trade yesterday um, and to get that sort of turnover on your float? Uh, very interesting. Clearly, there was a plan for this, um, both on, you have to have two parties to create a trade, right? There has to be a buyer and a seller, a, a bid and ask. So they've, they've worked on both sides of that, uh, which is terrific. I think this was done really well. And if I were to look right now, and uh, where are we? We're at 55 cents today. Um, so I'm up quite a bit. And they've already had 10 and a half million. This is around, uh, it's 11.20 Calgary time. So you're, you know, 1.20 Toronto Eastern time. Um, so they're halfway through the day, a little more than halfway through the day, and they've already had uh, 10 million shares trade today. So the volume's a little bit lower, but it's still pretty strong. Um, and of course, there has to be more demand than supply for the price to start going up. And I expect over the next week and two, you're, we're going to see that uh, grow substantially. That's my bet. That's my prediction on this. Uh, to, 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 to grow your stock, to get value at a mid-market smaller company, something without a big brand that has a pull to it, like an Amazon, an Apple, um, you need a promoter. You need, you need a marketing plan. You need to treat that stock as a completely separate asset, a separate currency from your business, and you need to execute on that. And for that, you have to have not just buyers, have, it's not just the demand, you have to have people willing to sell and make a market and trade these things. It takes work, it's hard work, and it seems to me these guys are doing an outstanding job. That's all I have for you today. I uh, hope you're having a great week. And uh, I think we'll be able to check in tomorrow again. Thank you.